Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. You start basically tying it backwards. You wind the first uh, hackle of marabou, you know, at the back, what would look like the back, and then you flip the tube around so it's the front. But what it does is, yeah, it just really helps it to uh, stay upright and creates a lot more bulk in the water. So that's the biggest uh, advantage of it. And it really creates a lot of movement too, because it doesn't mat down. So it really allows the the fingers and the fibers of the of the marabou to, to work real well in the water. That was Rick Kustich with the reverse fly tying tip. Spay Nation, how to set the hook and the steelhead school today on the swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. One of the best ways to support this podcast is to check in with our sponsors. You can go to any of their websites and click over there right now and have a look and see what you need next to fill that gear satchel right now. Before we get started today with Rick, I'd like to remind you that we have a big giveaway that just launched. This is for the Steelhead Alley trip, and this year uh, we're giving away a trip uh, with Rick and or Jeff Liskey, so we got a double deal going this year. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway right now and enter to win this giveaway. This is the best chance for you to get not only a trip to Steelhead Alley, with either Rick, uh, Jeff Liskey, and I, and the gear. We got a bunch of great gear as well. So again, that's wetflyswing.com slash giveaway. Enter there, enter your email, name will follow up with the winner. We're gonna be announcing this live on Facebook uh, next week. So stay tuned for that. If you wanna actually get a slot and get a paid slot right now, you can also go to wetflyswing.com slash steelheadschool, and that'll give you a chance to enter your name there as well. And, uh, and we can give you more information about how to get one of those paid slots. we got a limited number this year. Um, we've got some people returning. So if you're interested, definitely sign up for that. And if you win the trip, if you win the giveaway, we will refund your money. Um, so there's two ways to uh, jump into this. All right. Uh, excited to uh, get going with Rick. Let's see what we have here. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing. From the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Since 2005, Togans has been over-delivering on price, service, and passion. And now you can check out that Togans buzz for yourself. Right now you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togans to get started. That's T-O-G-E-N-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to Togans online. Rick Kustich is back on the podcast today to take us into Modern Spay and some of uh, his new uh, things he has going, including a new book. We discover who some of the early players were in the Spay game. We get a little more history there. We find out how, uh, how Rick swings flies on Lake Erie trips, and we're going to dig deep into Steelhead Alley because 
Uh, Rick is going to be our guide this year, uh, along with his crew, some other people you know of. So this is going to be exciting. Steelhead Alley, if you want to get into it and check it out, we got Rick, and uh, we're going to dig into it right now. Here we go. Rick Custage from rickcustage.com. How's it going, Rick? Great, Dave. Great to be here again. Always enjoy talking with you. Yeah, thanks for coming back on here. We, um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the last episode we did. It always seems like when I have these repeat episodes, like it's been years and years. I'm sure it hasn't been that long, but I wanted to get an update since the last time we talked. You've got a new book that's out on Steelhead, and Steelhead is always a hot topic. We're actually going to be fishing with you this year, which is exciting. Uh, we're heading out to not only Ohio, but New York this year to fish with you and Nick. And so this is going to be a big year. I feel like New York has been a hot topic for me because we've been doing a lot of trout. Obviously, it's got steelhead. Uh, maybe let's start. We're going to get the update in a second, but just talk about New York from a steelhead perspective. Like, how is it different than, say, anywhere else in the Great Lakes? I think, first of all, it's, it's quite diverse in terms of the size of the rivers and the opportunities. I mean, from, you know, big water, like even though the lower Niagara River which is, you know, 200,000 CFS, um, you know, to some smaller intimate streams. So I think there's just a, a wide variety of, um, of water. So I think that's one thing New York offers. And I think the other thing is it's just so condition oriented. Um, so the conditions just change from day to day. Uh, it can really be a frustration from a fishing standpoint, but, and, you know, and, and, and provide some challenge, but it's certainly, uh, you know, also can provide that great satisfaction when you can kind of put all the pieces together and, and hit it just right. It just seems like uh, there's always something that's probably fishing well, you know, based on sometimes, you know, some water's high and some water's low and, and some clear, some dirty. And, and, you know, it's really just kind of a, a matter of putting the pieces together every day. I think that's what uh, kind of makes our, our fishery somewhat unique. That's it. So any given day, you've kind of know that's, I guess that's why you know, being a guide and knowing everybody around there, you kind of know what's going on. This river's out, this river's in, you know, you, you're, you're talking. I think Jeff mentioned that when we were in Ohio, that's a big part of what you guys offer uh, from the guide's perspective. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just being able to try to stay one step ahead of it and, uh, you know, anticipate, you know, what weather conditions are going to do to the river conditions and, uh, you know, just try to stay that one step ahead. I mean, it's not always, it's, it's certainly not foolproof, <laughs> But we, you know, we give it our best, and and uh, you know, most of the time it works out. That's right. Nice. And and what is the just on the head, so we don't forget this. The new book. Talk about the new book. What's the name? And talk about why you did another book because you've got a number of books now. Yeah. So the new book is titled Modern Spay Fishing, and what I tried to accomplish there is to, uh, I, I guess, demystify spay fishing a bit. Um, and it's more than just a steelhead book. It's more than just really even. Uh, uh, and in Miss Fish book, it really tries to cover all that spay has to offer, you know, including you know, talking about trout spay and even how you can apply it to smallmouth fishing and, um, you know, a, a variety of other species and how you can apply two-handed, you know, even two-handed overhead casting uh, into your fly fishing. So it's really is aimed at looking at the full approach of, you know, where spay has come to and, uh, you know, how, how, Angler, I you know I do think there's a increased just in general fly fishermen in, in Spay, and even if it's just more an inquisitive um, portion at this point, but I think that more and more anglers are 
finding ways that they can incorporate it into their fishing. So that's really what this is aimed at, trying to, uh, you know, provide the information for people to, to take it to another level and enjoy it at a different level. Nice. And would this be for somebody, if they're listening now and they've been thinking about getting into spay hat, don't really have a rod or anything, would this be good for them, the beginner? Yeah, absolutely. I, I tried to make, tried to create a book that would be very helpful for someone that has never spay fished before uh, to try to break down the terminology, um, you know, in terms of rods and lines and, um, you know, match what their objectives would be in terms of spay fishing, but also try to incorporate more detailed information on particularly the fishing aspect of, of spay fishing, uh, the tactical aspect, and a couple of strong chapters, I think, on uh, presenting the fly and how it can go just beyond simply casting and swinging a fly to really, you know, actively fishing a fly on a tight line, you know, in different types of water that maybe, you know, wasn't originally associated with spay casting and spay fishing and swinging a fly. Nice. Well, I wanted to talk, you know, you know, in your book, you don't cover, it's not just steelhead, but today I think I want to focus a little bit back on steelhead because we are going to be heading out there this year and later in December. Well, it's early December. I think we're going to be heading out there. We don't have the exact details yet, but essentially this year we're going to be kind of doing two trips. We did the steelhead alley trip where we were out with Jeff Liskey and we hit that in Ohio and we actually had a little bit of PA as well, but now we're going to be having this kind of the second part is New York. And so I want to talk about that a little bit today when what people can expect. So talk about that. So if we had this trip we're planning now for, you know, early December, what does that look like? Are the rivers we're going to be fishing? Are these some secret waters? Are these waters everybody knows about? What's that going to look like? <laughs> well, um, I think at that time of year, we start to transition from, you know, that fall fishing and we can already start to receive a little early winter weather in December. So um, what I do like about that is, you know, what New York has is uh, mainly winter run fish. So the fish continue to enter into the rivers well in late November, early December. Actually, uh, December is really one of my favorite months for fishing steelhead. I mean, the water gets a little colder, or maybe the fish aren't quite as aggressive as they would be in October and November, but they'll take a, a swung fly still very well at that time of year. So, um, you know, conditions, you know, as I mentioned earlier, conditions are the key to this fishery and, um, you know, they probably come just a touch more challenging as you get into December, given the fact that you can start to get into some colder water situations or even, uh, a bit of freezing. So, um, in terms of the water we'd be fishing, it's really good to range from some bigger water. The one thing that New York offers over Ohio is that we do have access to tributaries on Lake Ontario as well as Lake Erie. So it's not all just the steelhead, you know, traditional steelhead alley uh, waters. You know, we would prefer, I think, you know, generally I prefer fishing the Lake Erie, you know, tributaries if possible. You know, part of that is that, you know, the runs have been fairly solid, uh, you know, on our Lake Erie tributaries. We do have some wild fish production on those tributaries as well. Uh, so, you know, there's just, I prefer that. Um, you know, if, if everything goes well, we would probably focus on, on the Cattaraugus and, um, you know, certainly a, a premier river in the Great Lakes region, you know, some beautiful water or countryside that it runs through some deep gorges, things of that nature and, uh, perfect for swinging a fly. So that would be our first choice if, you know, 
the conditions all work out well. Yep. Perfect. That's awesome. And that's definitely a name I've heard a lot about. So that would be fun to do. And it seemed like when we did the Ohio trip, the thing that blew me away was just, yeah, kind of the diversity and how cool it was. I mean, you know, there were people out there, but there was diversity of river sizes and then the mm -hmm. techniques, right? And then when mm -hmm. you got into the, you know, Jeff had it so dialed in on things, you know, we had, is that kind of the same thing with you guys, like the lines? I guess let's talk about that when, you know, we're talking about modern spay. So what does that look like for you when we're out there? You know, are we going to be using a mix of lines, sinking lines, dry lines, rods, stuff like that? Yeah, I think, you know, for the most part at that time of year, we'll be fishing the fly down in the water column. So, um, you know, it'd probably be a mostly Skagit, you know, style lines at that time, probably sinking leaders, maybe even if the water's up high, some 10 foot pieces of T8, T11, things of that nature. But you know, a lot of times we just use like sinking poly leaders, um, versi leaders, things of that nature you know, in the five to seven inch per second range, and then try to control also depth with, you know, with weighted or unweighted flies and angle of cast and things of that nature. But, you know, for the most part, we'll be fishing water that'll be, you know, on the colder end and we'll be fishing the fly down in the water column. You know, both Nick and I like using shorter rods, um, you know, kind of give a little more intimate connection to the fish. You know, I think that you know, in the last number of years, just a lot of rod manufacturers are making some quality rods in that, you know, 11 to 12, 12 and a half foot range. So I think that matches up well with the rivers that we'll be fishing. Perfect. Great. And Nick, uh, we'll put a link to that episode we had with Nick Pinesa a while back as well in the show notes. And so we're starting to tick off some of those names out there, you know, some of those great lakes. Who else is out there that you're kind of connecting with? Are there other guides that you're talking with out there quite a bit on Steelhead Alley stuff? Well, sure. Um, one that I work with is Vince Tobia. He owns, uh, you know, a business called Cataraugus Creek Outfitters. Uh, you know, pretty extensive, successful guide and travel business. And Vince is a good guy. And, you know, both Nick and I work with him to some degree as well, just having our own clients. Uh, has been doing it for a number of years. And, you know, if, if I, I still have to talk to him, but he would possibly be the third guide we'd have on that on that trip. Yeah. The trip will be later or in December, but um, we're going to be launching this giveaway event, which is going to be fun. We do every year. And so we're, we're going to be talking about that and putting that together. So we did have a couple of questions. I'm going to take a, a little a break here, Rick. We have this new segment we're doing on Instagram where we're doing like a Q&A. And we did a, uh, a little bit of a shout out to you coming on the podcast. And we have a few people who asked some questions. And I just want to give a shout out to them because these are questions I've, I've I already asked one of them. But here's one from uh, J-M-O-C-E-G-Y-E-E. -E. I'm not quite sure on who that is exactly. But on Instagram, he asked, what is the ideal water temperature for swinging for steelhead? Which is always a good question. Yeah, I think ideally, if you can find water temperatures that are between 44 and 56 i think that's when fish are the most active but i think really a lot of it has to do with just the direction of the temperature as well um it's not always just absolute temperature but if you have more stable temperatures you know you where you don't have any dramatic drops in the temperature overnight you know i think that keeps fish more active you know i've seen even you know within that optimum range if you in in our yeah, our rivers are susceptible to some dramatic decreases in water temperature overnight if you get a cold snap. Um, there is some groundwater influence, but not a lot, so that uh, you know you, the air temperature can really have a significant impact. 
So when you get a dramatic decrease overnight, it can really slow the fish's metabolism down. So you'll notice that in the morning. Um, so a lot of times, even in those situations, um, you know, I'd even try to delay going out a little bit until uh, things have a chance to start warming up a little bit and recovering. And even, you know, when water temperatures drop below 42 or even into the 30s, fish will still be pretty active to a swinging fly, especially after the water stabilized. You know, if it stabilizes and if it drops from 45 down to 35 or something like that in a real short period of time, that can really slow, you know, the fish's activity. But once it's dropped into that, you know, high 30, mid 30 range, and has kind of stabilized in that, it seems like, you know, the fish adapt to that and um, can still remain pretty active and chase the fly pretty well. Um, you know, we'll just try to adjust the water we're fishing so that, you know, the fly isn't swinging quite as fast in those colder flows. I'm trying to find, you know, some of the slower, deeper pools and things of that nature and try to adjust that way but still i mean we still get very aggressive takes even in that cold water and you know it took me even a while to to use to that i mean when i was first starting out you'd hear the stories well they don't take well first you know in the great lakes they don't take a swinging fly right. at all i mean that was one of the great, well, you know one of the you know great false uh, bits of information i heard when i was fishing but um you know just even the the, the whole idea of them taking a you know steel had taken a gray lake steel had taken a swinging fly in cold water you know that has definitely changed and you know you really really just you know it really helps when you have stabilized cold water though yeah stabilized that's key now it's a great tip so if it's cold and what were the temperatures again you mentioned uh, the range where they're most active I feel the range, the most optimum range is between 42 and 56. Yeah, and 56. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, no, that was a great clarification. And then on the history, you know that. So, so take us back there for a second. I can't remember if we talked about this on the last episode we did, but what was that like? Give us a little snippet. When was it when people were saying, man, nobody's swinging flies, you can't do it? When was that? And then what did it look like as that changed? Well, I'd even go back to, you know, so I've been fishing for steelhead in the Great Lakes since... 75 i believe um and back then it was you couldn't even catch them on flies <laughs> mm. you know it, you know it didn't matter you know not even dead drifting so that's where we started you know to kind of prove that wrong and um you know then it just i think by the uh early to mid 80s we were swinging flies for them and you know clearly proved that you could do that and then you know throughout that time uh you know, through the 80s and early 90s proved you can do it in cold water and, you know, it just kind of continued to escalate from there. Yep, it keeps going. And then what's the next step? Because it seems like we're all on this path, right? As you get, maybe, I don't know, you get bored of uh, however that works. You keep making it harder. Like what's yeah. what's the next step after this? Like in modern spade, do you talk about that at all? Yeah, well, you know, I guess, uh, you know, the next step is really just kind of catching fish on your own, you know, totally on your, your own terms. And I guess that next thing would be just, you know, using more floating lines and, uh, you know, fishing the, the fly higher in the water column and things of that nature. And that, that all works. Um, you just have to find the, the right conditions and the right situations. So that's probably the, the last, the last front or the next frontier anyways. That's awesome. We have a couple of West Coasters uh, who I'm sure you know of, and um, Adrian Cortez is one where they're just, um, you know, doing winter 
we'll put some links out to these episodes as well. But yeah, it's all winter, all dry on the surface. And the thing about that is you're just not going to get as many hits, but they definitely get some. Um, and and uh, just remind me that you guys are having an event. Maybe we could talk about this. I'm not sure. I think that it's in August this year, but talk about this spay event that's coming out into your neck of the woods. Yeah, so August 11th to August 13th, Spay Nation. So Spay Nation was a... Um, a spay clay, a one day spay clave that has, wasn't, you know, was in existence. The driving force was an individual named Jeff Shack. And uh, it was in the past was an event that raised some money for uh, a a landlocked salmon restoration project in New York state. COVID kind of interrupted the original spay nation and it hasn't been held the last few years because of that. And uh, so Swing the Fly, Zach Williams at Swing the Fly picked up the uh, Spay Nation name and uh, this past year, and we're bringing it back uh, as a three-day event. So last year, Topher, Brown, and I had, um, under the, the Swing the Fly banner, hosted some uh, Spay casting classes on the Salmon River in August, and they were very successful. So we combined those classes this year with the original kind of format of the Spay Nation, which is, you know, just really a a spay clave open to the public. So what we ended up with is going to be a Saturday event. And uh, I guess that's August 12th, where there'll just be a, you know, a a lineup of uh, presenters providing um, a variety of topics on spay. And then on the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, we're going to have classes. So it'll be fishing classes, casting classes, tying classes um, that you know require a fee and, and pre-registration. Um, and, and combining it all together and having a, a you know a Friday uh, kind of an informal you know happy hour event as well to kind of mingle with the presenters and things of that nature. So I, I I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be a great event and um seems to have a lot of energy behind it right now so yeah should be good that's cool yeah i love that uh was zach was uh, or i'm trying to think the swing the fly was he from originally the great lakes area and then headed out west zach is originally from michigan yes there you go which is i mean not that uncommon it feels like there's a lot of people that were out there headed west and maybe headed back eventually but i mean there's there's a lot over i remember when jeff talked about that when we were doing our thing you know he kind of made it sound like hey there's not a lot of people doing the west heading out to the great lakes but it seems like maybe that's kind of even going behind us too because it's all the same thing really it's just fishing yeah you know i i I love that my brother jerry and i used to talk about that all the time there seemed to be such a division between you know west coal steelhead and what people were doing in the great lakes and i do really like that that's broken down a bit that you know it is it's we we have a legitimate fishery here and you know you can call them what you want i mean whether they're you know freshwater steelhead or or you know to me they're they're still migratory fish and um you know it's a, a fishery worth people's time and effort and um i do like that that seems like that's um that division is broken down a bit and you know it's just fishing like you said yeah it's just fishing. Cool. Well, let's do another uh, little Instagram uh, Q and A. And, and, and remind us again. Just, yeah, go thing, ahead. Just real quick, Dave. Um, if people want to know more about you know the Spay Nation event on the Swing the Fly website, if you go to the website, there's a Spay Nation button there and uh, has all the details. And if anybody wants to uh, register for a class, 
Um, it has the it has the uh, schedule of the presenters, and uh, we're really trying to provide like a full day. I, I think it's the the you know an opportunity to kind of get this thing re-energized and you know have well thought out presentations that kind of connect to one another so that if somebody's new to spay they would they would get something out of it if somebody is uh in that intermediate phase they'd get something out of it as well and good access to all the presenters so i think that's really what this is going to offer perfect no this is awesome i think this is the perfect fit too for what we have going because people can hit that in august maybe get a class get ready and then still land on our trip in December where they're ready to really go deep on the, you know, the deep dive even yes, deeper. So absolutely. Absolutely. And, and one of the greatest, uh, you know, things that, that we, you know, that we, there's a number of people that took classes last year that are going to take other classes this year. So, um, it's really, you know, working out to be a, uh, um, you know, a way for people to, you know, really continue to improve their skills. Perfect. No, this is awesome. I love it. Remind us again on Instagram. What's your handle on Instagram? It's just at Rick Custage. Okay, perfect. And we are obviously at Wet Fly Swing, so we will have um, people can follow us and if they want to answer or ask a question for an upcoming guest. So we did this here this last week, and we got another question here from Cole.Pancake, Cole Pancake, and uh, he asked, this is a good one because this could happen to us, right, while we're out there with the low water. He said, how do you catch a fish on the fly in low, clear water? So there's no question that, you know, we have found that going stealthier, uh, certainly works best when that water gets clear and low. I mean, I do feel like as much as I don't think sink tips and sinking leaders do much to spook fish when the water's up or when the water's got some stain, um, I feel totally different when the water's real low and clear. Uh, I think one of our best strategic moves that we generally make in those situations is to uh, just go to a long you know, monofilament or, or fluorocarbon leader and use a weighted fly, you know, and just try to get that fly a lot further away from the fly line. Gotcha. And how does that look when you're, I guess you still have the, the Skagit head on there. You're still able to swing that fly. Yeah, you could, or then, then you could cast that with a, a Scandi head if you'd like, mm. you know, or some type of a hybrid head. Yeah. Gotcha. And so with the modern, you know, thinking of again, back to the, to the book with modern spay, do you talk, is it all swinging or do you talk about other techniques you could use spay for? Well, I would say it's all tight line and I would definitely like this question would be, is, I, I know it is addressed, you know, in detail in the book because there, there's two, I, I think two main advantages of being able to use a, a, a long monofilament leader or my, a long, let just long fluorocarbon leader. And usually those leader lengths are going to be about the same length as your rod. You know, that, that allows for, you know, for the best in casting setup. But I, I do talk about that in there. This is the type of, and it really is the type of stuff that, uh, you, you know, are covered extensively in a couple of the chapters. But so it's, it's more about, you know, presentation of the fly on a tight line. And a lot of it is, yes, you're swinging the fly, but also, you know, how you can deal with different types of structure, how you deal with different types of uh, water conditions, you know, and, and in the situation, you know, weather, water conditions. And, um, you know, the, the two things that, that I see with using the, the long leader like this, one is it's definitely stealthier um, and, and it, when it's proven to be, a, you know, much more effective when you get that really low, clear water. But it also, the, the 
lower diameter of the leader allows you to get a little slower swing as well. Um, you can kind of control that swing path a little bit better. You know, you don't get that same push of the current. Right. It's almost like it's like Euronymphing. It's kind of like yeah, Euronymphing, right? Yeah, to a degree. I mean, it's, or not, it's, it's not like Euronymphing, yeah, but it's no, the same concept. Yeah, yeah, to a degree. You're, you're, you can slow the swing down. And it's a, so that also makes it effective um, in colder water, too, where you really want to kind of make sure that that fly is kind of just hanging, not moving real fast out of the lie, kind of hanging down in the current a little bit more. Because again, the lower diameter just doesn't get the current isn't pushing it like it's pushing, you know, the head of the line, and that's where using a, uh, a you know, a Scandi head in combination with the uh, with the long leader allows you to get a little better control on the speed because you don't have that larger diameter of the, uh, you know, of the head um, getting pushed by the current. Right. Are you actually on these low clear? Are you seeing the fly, seeing the fish sort of thing? Um, most of the time it's not, I won't say there, on some of the smaller rivers, there are opportunities where you'll actually see the fish and you'll actually see it react, but it, it's not that common. Even in the clear, lower clear water, the fish are usually down, you know, in crevices, cracks, you know, behind rocks and things like that, where you're not going to actually, but you know, the, it is a little more common to actually see like the flash of the fish or the movement of the fish, you know, just as the, as it takes the fly. And that's really exciting. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for spay and swung fly techniques for the OP and beyond. They're known for their deep selection of unique high quality fly time materials and they are the gateway to some of the great steelhead rivers in the country. I was able to get out on the water with Ed, and it was an amazing day. We uh, hit the shop early, met him at the shop. We fired up the old vehicle and headed out on the river. Ed is the type of guy that you feel comfortable right from uh, minute one, and it was a good day. We ended the trip uh, for buying into this unimproved boat ramp, pulling the boat out, and, and we ended up with a great opportunity and landed a nice, very nice cromer and had a few other touches fished one of the great rivers in the country it was amazing not only do they cover steelhead but all species in the area and they have a passion for all fish that swim up or live around salt they can outfit any angler from the beginner to the most hardcore fishing bum you can imagine they have a great online store fast shipping and uh, you will be supporting conservation when you support waters less please check in with ed and kyle right now to say hi and let them know you heard uh, from them on this podcast. And you can do that right now, wetflyswing.com slash waterswest. So awesome. So we're hitting on a couple of these Instagram questions. I'm glad we did this because this is a new segment we're doing. I think people are loving it as we go. Um, I've got another one I'm going to leave till the end, which is from somebody I think you know. But um, but let's take it back to the trip. So break down the trip. So if we're going to be going, I know we're kind of creating it as we go, but I think essentially what we're doing is like a four night, three days, full days of on the water. What does that look like? What will people do? They come in there. Are we going to be, um, you know, I guess coming in the night before to talk about how you think the trip is going to look as we break it out over those days. Um, you know, you, yes, you arrive the night before and, um, get rested up <laughs> Get ready for a full, you know, three full days. Yeah. And I'm not even sure if we have, I'm trying to think of the place. I'm not sure if we've landed on 
uh, a place yet, but will this be like a short drive, long drive potentially to the, to the fishing waters, to the Cataraugus or wherever? Yeah, I think we will arrange something that will be probably a half hour or so drive to where we would be fishing, um, you know, in an ideal situation and leaving the location in a place where we'll be able to hit other waters if the Cataraugus doesn't work out. So we'll kind of hedge the bets a little bit. And, um, you know, at that time of year, you know, fish are spread out throughout the river. Um, we usually concentrate a little higher up on the water, you know, on the river at that time of year. So, you know, we'll have easy, you know, half hour access probably to uh, that water, but we'll be able to make some changes and pivot if we need to. Okay. And when we think of this, we always, you know, we're thinking of this as like a school, more of a school, which think, you know, talks about maybe digging in. And obviously you've got some books and lots of content there. How does that look from a school perspective? How does this look different than say just a guide trip from what we're doing? You know, I think any of my guide trips, and I, and I know Nick is very similar. There's always an educational part of those trips. I mean, I, I never want to feel that anybody fishes with me that is just out there to simply catch fish. I, I want somebody to always leave with a, a lot more information in their head than they started the day with. Um, so I think even my normal days out will, you know, incorporate a lot of, you know, educational, um, opportunities. And so I, I see this being very similar that it will work, work hard to make sure that everybody has a really good understanding of what we're trying to accomplish and really go out there and, and give it some practical application. Mm-hmm. And, and I think casting, you know, the spay is obviously always, a can be a challenge for people we'll probably have a mix of backgrounds, people that are new and people that maybe are don't need as much, but it seems like there's always something to tweak. Do you find that when you're guiding somebody out there? Yeah, there's always, always, yeah. Yeah, always. And I mean, there's, that even goes for myself when I'm fishing. I mean, there always seems like there's something to tweak or improve or change. I mean, I think the most fascinating thing about spay casting and spay fishing is the fact that it it's always different. Every cast is different, you know, depending on wind and in current in depth and you know in the water and the structure you're trying to cover and and it's just always a puzzle every cast every step down is a a new puzzle so um really trying you know so even from my own standpoint i mean you're always kind of learning something you're always trying to you know s figure out that puzzle but at the same time i you know i think i try to work with people you know as we work down a pool just point those things out and uh, make everybody more aware you know, from a, from a, also from an educational standpoint, sure. If, if someone is, you know, really new to it, um, yeah, we'll spend an hour or two just casting before we get out there, you know, just so that it's less frustrating and, you know, maybe even less dangerous to make sure that you have a, you know, that the basics, but then during the course of the day, I mean, once a, uh, individual has a, you know, those basics down, you just kind of work throughout the day to, continue to improve that and to continue to get more consistency. I really think that's really what it comes down to. Perfect. Yeah. And I think we'll have to, uh, get something figured out too, where if we, uh, 
we always have try to have some coursework, but maybe what we'll do is just uh, start with the book. Maybe we'll we'll get everybody to walk away with it, one of your books, and we can talk about that as a piece to um, follow up on. I mean, I guess that's the question with your book. If somebody takes one of those home um, or is ringing, is that, is that a good prep for this trip? Uh, yeah, I think it is. I think it's great, great prep for the trip. You know, again, it really an extensive chapter on rigging and um, you know extensive chapter on casting too you know really gives the basics uh and from what i tried to do in that chapter too was not just talk about casting in in um in detail but also try to relate the casting to the fishing and how um you know spay casting relates to the actual act of, of fishing and how um you know that you make different adjustments and um you know, you know, different uh, uh, approaches to the casting throughout the day to meet the fishing challenges. Right on. Perfect. And I think what I'm going to be doing on this is probably because we're going to have a thing going in kind of Ohio as well. So I'll probably be in there um, and swing up. How far is it from if you're fishing down lower down some of the stuff Jeff fishes to head up to your neck of the woods? What's, what's that drive look like? Oh, it's not far. Um, hour to an hour and a half. Oh, yeah, that's it. Right. So it's short. That's the thing you realize. Even though New York and the, they're all huge states, we're talking about a little area on the South Shore of Lake Erie, right? So it's not that far apart. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, it's a pretty extensive length of Lake Erie, but the areas that he fishes to, you know, kind of that central Ohio up to the kind of the southern part of southwestern part of New York really isn't that far. Gotcha. And you mentioned before on Ontario. So that would actually be a lot of fun to hit a new basin or a new lake. So you, is it just a numbers thing where Lake Erie has more fish they're releasing or why is Ontario, what's the difference there? Well, this past year, definitely the runs on the Lake Ontario tributaries were better, stronger than the Lake Ontario tributaries. There's not as much water up there either. I think we have, you know, the Lake Erie's, Lake Erie tributaries have a little more quality water, but probably the, you know, the best opportunity that we would have um, in this western end of New York would be to look at the Niagara River. It's much different than, uh, you know, the rivers we'd be fishing on Lake Erie. But it is, uh, you know, it's, it's unique and uh, I think really kind of provides a, a great experience, um, at least for a day. So that, that would be an option for sure. Yeah, it's an option. That's the key is have an option. So we're going to come in and like we said, just walking through this trip, we're going to fish basically we'll have uh, probably about six people two people with each guide we'll go to maybe a different river maybe we'll be in the same river fishing it and then we might mix it up each day come back maybe do a little fly tying at the end depending on you know where we're at and then uh, and then we yeah we'll have three solid full days in the river and then the cool thing is, is that I think a lot of times people are driving because they're up in that area and so I think there'll be opportunities that that's kind of the cool thing about this is that you learn from a guide right I think I've said that so many times you want to increase, you know, or however that is, decrease your learning curve, get a guide, yeah. you know, and this is like kind of on steroids because we're doing like a full trip together of multiple mm -hmm. days. So I feel like, you know, when I came out of the one last year with Jeff, I had, you know, a couple of huge things I wor was working on that I took away from that with my spay. Do you feel like that's kind of what it's about finding a couple of really big things to work on over the year and then come back or what's your take there? Yeah, I think so. I, I look back and even how long, I have been doing this and, uh, yeah. you know, and I see new casters and new anglers struggling with a certain thing 
And I remember struggling with those same things many years ago. And um, yeah, it just does take time to really iron things out. I mean, today's equipment has shortened the learning curve, you know, for sure. But at the same time, when you put the full package together of both casting and fishing, you know, it does take time. Uh, and it depends on how much time you're spending on the water as well um, as to how quickly, you know, you can kind of absorb some of those new things. So, yeah, I would say that that's probably a, a good thing to think about coming away with a, a couple of really, you know, key points that kind of changes how you look at it or uh, potentially changes, you know, how you, uh, how you cast and fish. Yeah, perfect. And roger.bird.5 on Instagram, we, we had another question here. He was asking about um, kind of your gear. So I was just thinking about that as well, like on your gear. What is your, you know, there's lots of great lines, lots of great rods. Is there a one you would recommend for this or that you use? Or are you a more SA or what's your uh, line of choice? Um, for the most part, I mean, I think there are a number of good rod manufacturers. And, uh, you know, rods in that, uh, like I mentioned earlier, for most of this 11 to 12, 12 and a half feet in length really are, are uh, probably match the best. Um, yeah, I'm on, I'm on the Scott pro plan. So, I mean, I, I work with Scott, but I also, uh, work with Bob Miser over, you know, RB Miser rods. He provides, you know, a wide range of rods and that's shorter, um, length, some really good rods for the Great Lakes, you know, and also, you know, Echo has some less expensive, uh, uh, options as well so those are probably the three rod companies that um, you know i kind of have associations with and and provide some you know good equipment for this yeah i've been last day i've been working with simon gosworth and uh rio the last number of years and simon did the uh um i was very uh honored for him to write the foreword for my new book oh wow uh, yeah i was pretty excited about that and so i've been using you know, the real lines um, the last couple of years and, um, their, their schedule lines, I think they've done a good job at, uh, you know, the, the early versions of schedule lines were so heavy and clunky to me. Um, you know, they've done a really good job at kind of ironing out those tapers to a point where they feel pretty smooth when you're casting them. So they're not just fishing tools any longer. They make for a nice cast. That's perfect. And the, the line thing is great because it's, you know, I mean, it seems like they're all good, you know, whether it's Rio or SA mm -hmm. or, you know, Airflow or yep. you name it. So, you know, they're they're all great. So that's what's cool about this. I always feel like I love hearing from, you know, what the guides are using just because I know it's just going to be a broad range. You know, you go ask Jeff and he's probably, you got a different, you know, company he's using and yep. and, uh, and it's all good. So what is the real, and I know we had Simon on, we'll put a link out to that episode recently. We were talking Skeena uh, fishing with Simon, but he was breaking down the Rio. What was, is it, it's just, what is the Skagit line you guys use for real? What's it called? Is it just the Skagit? I can't remember what it's called. Uh, it, it's uh, it's the Launch Max, I believe. There's two of them. Okay. Yeah, but that's the one I think I've been using. Yeah. Okay. Good. And all, and all, like I said, we'll we'll get Simon. That, that's pretty cool on the forward thing. I mean, that's got to feel pretty good. Probably. I mean, maybe the biggest name in our current, you know, in Spay. It seems like Simon's up there. What was that like? How did you convince him to do that? Well, he's, you know, and I did, I just listened to, uh, I was riding the other day and I listened to the, your podcast. Oh, you uh, did? Yeah. Yeah. It was, and that, you know, that's just how he is. He's just really nice, genuine guy. And, uh, you know, when I approached him, he just, he had no hesitation, you know, in terms of, you know, we, we had talked 
at the shows for years and um, he knew who I was and all. And uh, I had no hesitation in, in being interested in it. And um, when he read it, he was really excited about, you know, the opportunity to do it. And, um, you know, by his own words, I mean, he, he really feels that this was a book that was needed, you know, something that, that was out there. There's been a lot of uh, good books and videos on casting, but one that really kind of encapsulates everything from rigging to fishing to presentation and whatnot. You know, I think he was, he felt very strongly that, uh, you know, there was a niche there that uh, this book fills. So it was great. It was an honor. I mean, really it's an honor because his book, you know, spay casting kind of really was a key part of my development. You know, I think that came out in 2004, somewhere in the early 2000s. And um, just a really key part of, I think that's where things started to really click for me from a spay casting standpoint was after reading his book. So, you know, for him to have that influence on me and then, you know, provide that is just really full circle uh, from that standpoint. Yeah, that is amazing. And it seems like your book, when you just look at the modern spay, I mean, it seems like um, that it's just been out there for, you know what I mean? Like, it seems like it's just, I, I, when I first looked at it, I was like, oh, wow, do I already have this book? It already feels like, you, you know what I mean? Like, is that what you were going with the name? I mean, it's so simple on the naming as well, but it, you add modern and it's like instantly you're like, oh, I know exactly like, yeah, I need that book because there's a bunch of stuff in the last 20 years that have changed. I mean, that's what you're going for, right? Right. It is. Uh, I'll say that I didn't want it to just be you know, the most current stuff because there, there is more to spade fishing. Yeah. Well, and what could it have been? Think of that. I'm sure you went through a few different names. Like what would another name have been that wouldn't have been as good as this? Yeah. You know, I have struggled with titles on other books. This one was just seemed to be the only thing I could call it <laughs> when I started writing it, you know, and I think I did come up with the, the title with Jay Nichols, the, the publisher of it. Uh, or the editor, you know, I think we came up with that title, you know, while having dinner one night and, um, you know, it's just never deviated. I just kind of felt like that, you know, when I described what the idea of the book was in bringing kind of spay up to date, I mean, I think that really, that title just popped out and, um, you know, it never really deviated from it. But, you know, I think one of the key things about it, like I said, I, I don't want it to be or didn't want it to be, and I don't think it turned out that way. Um, just, you know, talking about the last five years developments or, or things of that nature, there's actually an extensive chapter on the history of Spay. And I felt like you really can't get a full flavor of what Spay fishing is today without understanding where it came from and how it developed and why it developed in the past. And, um, you know, I think that was really an important aspect of it. And then I don't want to lose sight of the fact that styles of fishing, styles of spade fishing that have been popular even for the last 20 or 30 years, that they're outdated. You know, they, we still can use long rods and, and long lines. There's a place for those. And um, I wanted to make sure that, you know, that that was an integral part of the book as well. And understanding where to use those rods and where to use those lines. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm going to salmon fishing next week um, up to Quebec. And, you know, I plan to bring some 14, 14 and a half footers, you know, and uh, get the longer lines out. You know, it's, that's the right place and time for those. And I don't want to lose that. So it's still a part of modern spay, even though 
we might think of modern spay as being more, uh, you know, Skagit's and, and Scandies, sure. And, you know, I even have a section in there on bamboo. You know, there's been advancements in bamboo, you know, it's uh, that kind of have gone into the modern areas era as well. So I didn't want to lose sight of that. That's perfect. Are you heading up there with Topher? Uh, I hope to see him. I know he's up there. Yeah. And actually, I just got a text from him last night, and it's been uh, wet and cold up there. I saw the saw the high temperature there today is only like fifty degrees, but I'm hoping that changes. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, Topher broke down a good Atlantic salmon episode we had recently, so it was awesome to hear his story finally. Yeah. And so modern space. So yeah, so we've been talking about modern space fishing, the new book, but yeah, you've got a couple other ones. I mean, the one that I remember first from you was the advanced fly fishing for Great Lakes steelhead. So, I mean, you've got, you know, even though the new one isn't just steelhead, I mean, you've already got the other one that, you know, kind of, you know, wrote the book on, right. Talking about Great Lakes. So you got that. And then also you did some stuff, the hunting muskie with a fly in between yep. there. And so, yeah, I mean, this is great. You're around. Do you look ahead now? Are you kind of like thinking, okay, I've got to have, what's my next book? Are you already thinking about that or, or no? I am. This one, this one was really uh, a lot of work and uh, particularly the last, you know, half year of really putting it together really, <laughs> really dragged me down. So I, I definitely need a break from books for a while. The one that I would really like to do, and I kind of have it mapped out a little bit in my mind, I'd like to do a trout book. You know, that's really where I started fly fishing. It's something that I continue to do, you know, inland trout or migratory trout. I continue to really uh, enjoy, you know, really all the different aspects of that. So I'd like to someday write a book on, you know, kind of everything, you know, it wouldn't be just a dry fly book and it wouldn't be a streamer book. It would try to really, you know, incorporate everything, you know, that I've experienced, you know, in, in the pursuit of trout. Would it be everything around the around the country, the world, or would we focus more on Northeastern? I think every experience I've had, and you know, and that would go outside of North America. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro Nymph reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without the shoulder burn. This reel is so unique, you may not even recognize it as a fly reel. I had a chance to fish the stinger reel with Jeff on his home river on the Truckee. The biggest thing that I remember is the weight. The weight really stuck out because you can't even barely tell there's a reel. It's essentially kind of like you're holding a rod all day long. I mean, it's that light. And, uh, and when you're Euro nymphing, that is a key. And the other big thing I remember from that day was catching uh, a fish on my first cast. Pretty cool to be down in that part of the country and have some great success with Jeff. Maverick keeps things simple by offering a Euronymph product line with essentials you'll need from rod, reel, fly line, and leader system. Euronymphing doesn't have to be complicated, so let Maverick Fly Fishing get you started right now. You can learn more by checking out Maverick's YouTube channel for some tips and tutorials. And you can also head over right now to wetflyswing.com maverick to check out the good stuff they have going. That's Maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash Maverick to support this podcast and take a look at one of the most unique and efficient Euronymphing setups on the market. Okay, back to the show. Good. Okay, so we got the book question answered. You're going to have some more good stuff coming. That's great. Talk about a little bit. You mentioned the history, and I don't want to lose that one. Give us the short little few-minute summary, if you can, you know, or just go into that a little bit on the history of spay. 
Like we've talked about it a number of times, but give us from your perspective, how does that look? I know that's not an easy question, but just a quick little summary. Yeah, I think, you know, historically it, it started in the mid 1800s on, on the River Spey. That's where it received its name. I think the interesting part of that is that Spey casting developed more out of, you know, the necessity or out of, um, you know, out of a way to solve a problem. And the problem was to make longer casts, longer fly casts in an area where there wasn't room for a back cast. And really, you know, to make that change of direction with limited back cast room, you know, the idea of making a, you know, kind of a waterborne cast where the fly line does not go completely behind your casting position was how spay casting was developed did they ever at one point it seems like you know 15 foot but it seems like that why not go 25 feet you know <laughs> like was there ever that thing where there's some of those like even crazy longer rods well and that's what it was back in those days they used these and i just can't even imagine how heavy they were but they were made out of a, a wood called greenheart and uh some of those rods were 22 23 feet long you know so they were obviously beasts of rods and you know the one thing i guess if you know you're trying to define what you know might be modern spay casting you know the idea that you know today we shoot you know usually a strip off 40 50 feet of running line then shoot the head of the line you know in original spay casting you use just the line that was beyond the tip of the rod uh, so you weren't shooting line so i think that's really one of the the key aspects of the longer rod is you're able to use a long, you know, long head beyond the tip or a long length of line beyond that. I don't think they talked in terms of heads back then, but a long length of line beyond the tip and it was able to make that cast. So, you know, really through, you know, the late 1800s, early 1900s, you know, spade casting was pretty much a European phenomenon and uh, was associated with Atlantic salmon. So it was certainly the birthplace. So it was probably more into the mid 1900s where spay casting and spay fishing started to show up in North America, you know, first in the Atlantic salmon rivers, uh, eventually then, um, you know, through middle part of the, maybe, you know, somewhere in the middle 1900s uh, started showing up on the West coast rivers, you know, West coast BC and things of that nature. You know, Roderick Haig Brown, talks about uh you know using spay casting you know somewhere in the 50s and 60s on some of his rivers you know so it, it started to slowly move and I, I would say it probably really then took off you know with the advent of uh five and carver rods and uh you know when there's you know i think in the late 1800s or late 1980s you know or early 1990s um there was definitely that that major expansion in spay casting popularity uh, just because of the equipment that's it so the equipment so the rods came in and now you had just really higher quality whatever the modulus is of the of the graphite right that was it yeah. so they weren't these super heavy what you hear about these super heavy sticks back in the early 80s that were just night and then whatever that line was right then right and so it went from a great rod and then then you had the rod and then it started then the lines came right behind with the the rio the, exactly because the originally originally on those longer rods that you know, that they were even fiberglass back, you know, some of the original 
you know, U.S. made fiberglass rods, um, they were still being cast with like double taper. You know, that was the spay line back in those days was a double taper line. Again, it, it was meant to be cast with, uh, with the full line or the full length anyways, beyond the tip. So I think that, you know, if you really were to th say, what is modern spay casting, modern spay fishing, it's probably that, that advancement into the idea of shooting ahead of line and in, in using running lines, you know, over just the, the, the length of the line beyond the tip. Yep. Perfect. So that's the modern and that's what you cover for the most part, because on yours, do you get into any of the, because there's all sorts of different types of spay. Like, you know, we've had a couple episodes where people have been talking about casting off, you know, into the, into the salt right off of the bank and going for stripers or whatever. Is that part of something you talk about there or do you, would you consider that modern? It is. Yeah. There's, yeah, yeah, no question. Um, you know, both in terms of using spay casts in the salt and, uh, and even though it's not truly spay casting, overhead to hand casting. You know, for either saltwater, that's how I fish for muskies now for the last five, six years. It's just all overhead, two-hand casting. And, you know, it's really a very efficient way to uh, cast those big fly. I mean, in muskie fishing, we're casting, you know, eight, 10, 12-inch flies, you know, very wind-resistant, you know, big, bulky flies. And uh, using a two-hander all day long is much easier than using a single-hander. And once you, you know, kind of got used to... Um, you know, spay casting and that forward spay movement and using both hands and, you know, pulling with the bottom hand and pushing with the top hand, you can develop some tremendous line speed easily, easily as much or not more with, you know, than, than the best double haul does on a single hand. Oh, wow. Is that how you do it? Like take a bit. Like, that's a good question. So if you're casting overhand with a two-handed rod, are you still doing the like the fulcrum and the pulling like you would with the spade cast? Are you doing like describe that, or is it more like a single-handed cast? You know, I I think it it's a little bit more of a hybrid because I am you know instead of a full fulcrum, there's a little bit more movement of the top hand, you know, kind of going forward, you know, moving it in a, a longer path. But at the same time, the idea of pulling direct with the bottom hand really is what creates the line speed. It's, it's very similar to a haul. So, um, you know, it's slightly different than just the forward part of a spay cast, but it has all the elements. So, I mean, if you, if you are proficient at spay casting and the forward spay, you know, you can pick up this overhead casting quite easily. Nice. Maybe we'll touch on that when we we see you there this uh, later this year. That'd be fun. Yeah, that uh, sounds good. Touch base. So uh, a couple other things. Well, first, um, well, let's just take it back on the water. We got one more. We got a couple more quick questions here. And in one, let's just say we're fishing. We're on this run. We know there was some fish in there. We're swinging it down. And the question is, is how do you detect um, the strike? You know, like what does that look like? If it's swinging down, are these fish going to be hammering it? Or are they going to be like just tipping it? What do you do when you're sitting out there? How do you not miss a fish? So I tend to be, and I talk about this extensively in the book about setting hook, because I think it is something that a lot of anglers really struggle with, uh, especially if you're fairly new to swinging. I tend to be very passive with my hook setting, uh, especially for steelhead. I don't want to react to just, you know, a lot of times you get the little bumps and pulls while that flies swinging. I don't want to react to that, you know, because, uh, you know, the steelhead can kind of follow and you know, kind of pluck and pull at the fly 
and at some point it might really grab it. You know, sometimes that happens through the swing. Sometimes it happens at the end of the swing. Other times they just won't grab it. But I, you know, I feel like, you know, I'm going to let that fly really just continue to swing until I, you know, I feel the weight of the fish or actually feel, um, you know, the pull of the fish. For the most part, when I'm steelhead fishing, there's a few exceptions to this, but for the most part, I'm using a, um, you know, a click and pull drag. I actually like the situation where I like the fish to actually take a, you know, four or five clicks off the drag before I do anything. And usually by that time, the fish is, you know, I, I feel it's already hooked itself, but I'll let it take a few clicks off the drag and then, you know, sweep to the near bank and usually results in a pretty good hook set. Um, you know, Nick and I, we've had many, many discussions on this over the years. There are times, particularly in um, water that is colder, where the fish might not grab the fly and pull and might not turn. You know, so where you just might feel the weight of the fish. And, you know, there's times where if you don't react, I think that fish can pick up the fly and then drop it. So in those situations, you know, there are times where, you know, if you feel that's happening, particularly on like the hang down um, and you feel the weight of the fish, but nothing happens, you know, setting the hook, you know, I, I think can, you know, be a benefit in those situations. And a lot of times what we're, what we're doing is set the hook. As a, instead of, you know, kind of doing a trout set or even a sweeping set, just kind of doing a pullback with the rod, almost like a strip set, but you're just pulling back the rod. So in that situation, if, the, if you know, if you do pull the fly and maybe it pulls it out of the fish's mouth, it didn't, it didn't have it firmly, it's just going to pull it a little bit and that might uh, even trigger the fish to push up and take it. I love that. Yeah, that trick. And I hadn't been doing it because that was one I think we did in, uh, when we were with Jeff is he... Yeah, at the end. So in the hang down, definitely let it hang down and then do, and I found myself doing that a lot. I'd give it like two or three or four pullbacks. Just the, you know, it's one of those things you, you get in a zone, you know what I mean? So you're yep. just, you're swinging and you're like, okay, it's kind of fun because at the end, you know, you're at the hang down. It's kind of boring just to sit there and strip it in. It's kind of good to do right. something. And, and you're saying those fish are so active that that's something that, you know, whatever percentage you're going to get some hookups from that. Yeah. You, you know, and a lot of times too, on that, on that hang down, you'd, give it two or three short strips too, even if you haven't mm, felt the fish. Short strips, right. Yeah, short strips. Or, but like you mentioned, just kind of doing that same thing, just doing the pullback two or three times, you know, just to give the, the fly a little different look, a little different uh, uh, action. You know, that can be effective. But yeah, in terms of setting the hook, you know, really just you don't want to be too quick, you know, in, in my mind. Um, and I think, okay, I, I probably miss a few Um grabs there's probably times where a fish where i where what i'm feeling is just a fish plucking the fly where maybe it really had it in its mouth but i think over the course of a day a week a year being passive and um kind of letting that fish really grab the fly and turn on it you know i think overall it results in the most quality hookups and you know my, my landing ratio is uh I think very high because of that. So, you know, for the, for the few fish you might miss here and there, um, I think you make up for it, you know, just in the total quality of the hookups that you get with that approach. And you mentioned the, uh, the click and Paul, what's your reel? I'm not sure if you have a bunch of different reels, but what's your real choice for that? I have a couple Farlex reels. Oh yeah. The Farlex. Yeah. I, yeah. By Tim Jolinas in, in Seattle area. And, uh, yeah, I fished with him a few times. He really makes a, a high quality click drag 
He's uh, really passionate about his reels. They're easy to maintain, um, and uh, they've performed very well for me. Yeah, and then when you get a fish on with those, what's the secret to landing a fish if it gets a little hot on you? How does that work? Yeah, you know, just every now and then, you know, you'll get a fish that, you know, maybe is getting a little too close to some type of structure or something like that. You know, so I can calm down the drag a little bit by just uh, letting that line run through my uh, index and uh, middle finger and just kind of add a little drag that way. There are a few situations, I, you know, a couple rivers um, that I fish, you know, and, you know, parts of the Niagara might be one of them or is one of them where you can't follow a fish real well and it can get you into some areas that, uh, you know, where you're just going to really decrease your chances of, of, a, of a successful landing. So there are, you know, times where I'll use a mechanical drag in those situations. Gotcha. Okay. And let's leave, um, as we start to take it out of here, I'm going to leave the last uh, Instagram Q&A question. And I think you might know this person, but it's uh, spay underscore bum one on Instagram. And he asked, um, the question he had was like about this desperate salmon story on the York River. <laughs> so is this a good story to take us out of here in, in, uh, today? Sure, it is. It, it, it's a good story. So this is Brian Slavinsky. He's up there, and Brian is up uh, on that river, same river right now. Oh, okay. Um, uh, this <laughs> uh, it goes back a long way. Actually, it's a story in, um, I wrote one book of stories called Reflections on the Water. And this is probably the most entertaining of the, uh, uh, of the stories on that, in, in that book. And um, yeah, it would probably take me an hour to go through the entire story, but I'll, I'll give you the abridged edition. Yeah. Um, but we were up there and, you know, certainly anytime. So I'll step it back a little bit. Brian, has turned into one of the most ardent salmon fishermen that I know. And we're talking Atlantic salmon? Yeah, Atlantic salmon. He has probably Atlantic salmon fished uh, up there every year since, I would say, about 1997. Maybe he's missed one or two years, and he wow. was in Norway last year. He probably missed a couple of years there during COVID, but has caught a lot of big fish, and he always... Uh, he always blames me for giving him this addiction because I took him up there <laughs> um, on a trip in September of, I think, 97. So we were on a, on a trip up there in, I would say, 2004 maybe. And, the, you know, the fishing as usual was tough. I mean, we were pounding a fish out here and there. You know, I think there was four of us. And, uh, you know, maybe every day, every other day, one person in the group was getting a fish. And, just pounding it out and I wanted to catch one on the York river, you know, in, in Canada, beautiful, intimate, you know, salmon river. And, uh, yeah, I just was, you know, just kind of getting into that situation where it was just kind of feeling hopeless that I wasn't going to get one there. And, um, there was a friend, uh, his client of Brian's and friend that was at our hotel, like, uh, I don't know, maybe about three days before we were ready to leave. And he just sat back and took a draw of his cigar and drank a little scotch and said, you know, I've never caught a desperate salmon. He says, anytime <laughs> that, you know, that I'm nearing the end of a trip and, you know, it's kind of getting to that point where you're not sure you're going to get a fish. Yeah, you kind of start tightening up on the, on the grip and you just start fishing fast and you just do things differently. And he says it just becomes, you know, really a, almost impossible to get a fish when you're really in that desperation phase. 
So I, I kind of, well, I remember when he first said that, you know, that he's talking about, you can never catch a desperate salmon. I was like, what's he talking about? But then as he <laughs> sat there and explained it all, it kind of started making a lot of sense. So that's all I could think about. I was in the desperation phase the last two to three days of the trip. I wanted to get one big salmon. And uh, we fished this one pool, pretty popular pool that you got to walk down to. But we got there early. So we were the first ones on the water. And, you know, the pool had fish in it. We were taking turns fishing the pool. Brian gave it to me first. Um, and it was just kind of, you know, giving me shouting. He was up high and he was shouting down, you know, instructions as to how to cover all the fish. And I got through the pool once and you, you kind of just cover it from this big rock. It's a falls pool and you cover it just from this big rock and you work down a little bit, but you can only work down the rock about, you know, it's this big boulder. You can only work down it about 20 feet. So I'm just, I want, I go through it once and it's like nothing and, you know, desperation sinking in. I think it was, you know, it, it might've been our last day. And the, all I could think about was the desperate salmon story. So I got my, <laughs> so I make my last cast and he goes, well, why don't you go through it one more time? So I make my last cast and I got my fly just hanging in the water, right? My fly's still in the water. I start walking up to the top of the rock. And I, and I go, oh, great. My fly's snagged now, you know, because I just feel this like resistance. Yeah. And I'm thinking, wait a second, I got a floating line on and an unweighted fly. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it just dawns on me. The only thing it could possibly be is a fish. And uh, as it turns out, it was this, you know, almost 30 pound salmon. No way. Um, I grabbed my fly while I was trolling it. <laughs> wow. Right in like near the bank. Yeah, trolling it on the way back up God. to the yeah it was unbelievable did you land it yeah it landed what it. was that fight like what was the fight like oh it was unbelievable too because um of this pool you can't follow oh right you can't follow yeah because there was like a, a high cliff wall and it was deep along the inside so there's no way to follow so it's just it was just this tremendous bright it was a bright fish did you have a click and paw on that reel no, actually I had, I did on that reel. I had a, um, mechanical drag at the time. And, um, I just remember the fish was at the lip of the pool and I had just had a hold on to it. Cause I knew if it got out of the pool, it's gone. And, um, so something was either going to break or I was going to turn the fish. And it was just that feeling. I think we probably have, you know, if you fish in that room is fish enough, you have that feeling where just you're right at the brink and all of a sudden you could just kind of feel the fish starting to relent. There you go. That's awesome. I'm glad. Uh, and who was that again that, that mentioned that? Uh, that's Brian Slavinsky. Yeah, that's all. I'm glad he, and we chatted a little bit on Instagram as well. So that's great. And where is the, is the York, where is the York River? Um, it's way at the very end of the Gaspé Peninsula, out near the town of Gaspé. Beautiful, uh, just a beautiful river. It's just smaller, more intimate. I, I kind of uh, always thought about it as being almost the counterpart to like the Kispiax up in BC, you know, just just a smaller intimate piece of water that has big fish. Right. Gaspé, that's it. And that's always the question. I think I might've talked to Topher about that. We were talking Atlantic Sam versus Steelhead. You've done a little of both. What's your feeling for, I guess the thing is it's easier to find Steelhead in the lower 48, but I mean, when you think about the fish you've hooked Atlantic Sam versus Steelhead, what's the big difference there? You know, I think the biggest difference from a, at least the, the rivers I have fished, the biggest difference from a fishing standpoint is where fish lie. You know, it seems like salmon take up more specific lies 
where I, I feel like when I fish steelhead water, they can be in just a much wider range of different areas. So I, I think that's the thing to me, you know, kind of understanding where to find fish in salmon fishing. And, and again, this is just based on my own experience versus in steelhead where, you know, I just feel more comfortable covering just almost everything, you know, when it comes to steelhead. That's a little bit of a reach, but covering a wider range of water. Yeah, you're not going to be, and again, I'm not in the Atlantic salmon range as much, but I mean, I, my guess is there's not many people nymphing uh, for Atlantic salmon. Right. Oh, and that's a, and that quite honestly is a difference too, in that generally you want a little more speed in the fly uh, when you're swinging it for salmon to kind of get that triggering. A little dirt, a little more, I would say, um, man. I mean, there's a lot of summer steelhead areas where the fish are surface oriented, but probably in Atlantic salmon are a little more surface oriented too. Yeah. Perfect. Let's take it out of here just with the flies. I, I was thinking of Nick, you know, uh, he, we did a great episode where we talked about his fl- fly tying, you know, obviously he's pounding out a bunch of patterns. What, what's your one fly? Let's say on this trip. So we're starting out day one, we're out there on, uh, you know, early December, you know, typically what's that fly you might be putting on there? You know, I, I've relied heavily on just some pretty simple marabou patterns. But, um, you know, just some reverse tie marabou's black over purple. Um, um, and what's the reverse tie? So, actually, I, if anybody's interested in seeing that, I do have a, I, I got a few YouTube videos up there. And I do have, it's, it's just Rick Custage fly fishing. And there's a, a video on that. So, basically, you're just, you're, you're tying it on a tube. You start basically tying it backwards. Um, you wind the first uh, hackle of marabou, you know, at the back, what would look like the back, and then you flip the tube around so it's the front. But what it does is, yeah, it just really helps it to uh, stay upright and creates a lot more bulk in the water. So that's the biggest uh, advantage of it. And it really creates a lot of movement too, because um, it doesn't mat down. So it really allows the, the fingers and the fibers of the marabou to work real well in the water. That's one of my go-tos. Um, and then, uh, you know, a couple other patterns that I, I like, you know, the, the one that I've um, relied on a lot is the, the bunny spay, just kind of a combination of rabbit and spay hackle. Um, you can pretty much find that in any of my books. I've talked about that one. Uh, and then um, there's one that I, you know, it's pretty simple. You know, I either tie it in a, uh, um, a tube or on a shank, and it's just called a catitude. And it just combines marabou or uh, arctic fox underwing with um, ostrich and uh, hackle, you know, you know, uh, saddle hackle and some flash. So it's just kind of a longer wing and really gets a lot of movement in the water. So those are my go-tos. We'll put links out to your video uh, in the show notes as well and some of those flies. And then what would be, um, we'll just talk for Nick since he's not here, what would be his steelhead fly if we're out there with him? What do you think he's putting on there? He's got really gives it a lot of thought. He's a tremendous tire. You know, he's really one of the, I think one of the top production tires in the country. You know, I think one that, uh, he likes is, uh, is Bill's spay and it's a little bit more of a natural look, a lot of movement in the water or the turducken. The turd, <laughs> what is it? The turducken? The turducken, turkey, chicken, and, uh, oh, gotcha. and, uh, and duck in it. So yeah, it's one of his go-to patterns as well. That's it. And Bill was, do you know, Bill, is there a name there? Or is that just Bill is his father. So it's named after his dad and materials that, uh, 
it's kind of original one was tied some from some materials all that uh his dad grew different uh had different birds on his property so it kind of comes from that nice all right rick well i think we'll leave it there and we'll send everybody like we said uh rickcustich.com or on instagram and uh, we'll send people out we'll put a link again you know to connect with your book take a look there but uh, yeah thanks for all the time today it's been good to you know, get caught up and uh, get fired up for this trip later this year. So I'm excited about that. And, and we'll be seeing you on the on the water. Oh, that sounds great, Dave. Always a pleasure talking with you. And uh, I look forward to seeing you later this year. There we go. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash 476 right now. You can check in right there, 476, and uh, get the show notes and get some other bonuses we have there at the website. A quick shout out before we get out of here uh, to you. And if you are loving this show, loving this episode, or loving any past episodes, if you can share an episode this week, that would help us tremendously and help another fellow angler out there maybe that doesn't know the show exists to get a little bonus this week. I always love when I find, get a heads up on a new podcast and uh, and I can go over there and binge it. Just binge the episode and, and listen to like a full day or whatever a week. Um, we love it when people are able to do that in the back catalog. Let's see. We Do we have a random fun fact as I leave you out of here? Um, I'm going to be thinking as I'm thinking Steelhead School. We're thinking Steelhead Alley, of course. And, uh, and let's take a look at where, where. Let's take a look at where we're heading next. Okay. After we wrap up Steelhead Week this year, I'm um, just looking ahead next week. Uh, we are going to be heading to the St. Joe River. We've got River Horse coming on, and, uh, and we have uh, the GLD number four, Great Lakes Dude podcast number four is coming out next week, and I believe this is going to be uh, the first interview that Jeff does on this podcast, so stay tuned for that. We've got a big week coming next week, and uh, actually this Friday and, uh, and Wednesday, we've got two big episodes coming up here this week as well. Uh, so if you want to hear Jeff Liskey dig into Steelhead Alley, we're going to be digging into that again on Wednesday. Then we've got the uh, Fly Fishing, Fly Fishers International coming in at the end of the week to wrap us out of here. Okay, uh, I'm going to let you get off to it and uh, and check in with Steelhead Week as we get this kicking off just now. Definitely, if you're interested in this, you can do it right now, wetflyswing.com slash steelheadschool. You can save a spot. Uh, we do have limited numbers of spots this year, so if you really want to get on this, get the double whammy. Get a chance to uh, to check out our second year of the Steelhead School East. Uh, and if you're interested in fishing Lake Erie trips, either New York or Ohio, we've got you covered. Hope to see you on the water. And if I don't, catch me online if you can. And I hope you are having a great evening, great morning, or great afternoon wherever you are in the world. And you are amazing for stopping in today and listening all the way to the very end of the show. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.